0: Welcome to Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. This season, we're tackling the big questions from our very big universe. That means that each episode, I, Ben McAllister,
1: and I, Adam Murphy, will take a look at one of the biggest cosmic questions in the world of space science and astronomy today.
0: We'll break down the basics for you and then pull in an expert guest for a more in-depth chat.
1: This is just the second episode in our new season. Last month, we spoke about something pretty simple, which was the entire history of the universe, including a detailed look at how it might end. So this month, we're taking on something a little bit closer to home, one of the largest
0: scientific endeavours of all time. We're answering the question, what is the Square
1: Kilometre Array? And we've got a special guest who'll be joining us to take us through the details.
2: The, uh, the, the science case for SKA, if I may... Yeah. Here it is.
0: <laughs> uh, so uh, for audio it's... listeners, uh, Phil has just picked up two very large, thick books the size of uh, two encyclopedias each.
2: Yeah, so they actually they weigh 9.8 kilograms combined.
0: But before that, Adam and I are going to break down the basics of radio astronomy and introduce the concept of the Square Kilometre Array, or SKA for short, which is the biggest telescope in human history.
1: Feel free to get in touch with us along the way on Twitter with at Naked Astronomy or at Naked Scientists, or leave us a comment on YouTube or wherever you're listening. But without further ado, let's get into it.
0: You're probably familiar with the concept of a telescope. Humans have been making them for at least hundreds of years and using them to learn about the universe beyond our own planet.
1: At its core, a telescope is a device which we point into space, to gather light from distant objects and use it to form images of faraway things.
0: When you think about a telescope, unless you've got some kind of astronomy background, you're probably thinking about an optical telescope. That is to say, something similar to what Galileo would have used, a series of lenses and mirrors which capture and magnify visible light arriving at Earth from space.
1: And indeed, optical telescopes are very important scientific tools, but they're by no means the only major kind of telescope. In fact, a lot of groundbreaking science has been done using what we call radio telescopes. a sort of cousin to the types of devices which Galileo would have been familiar with.
0: Light comes in a variety of different flavours. The visible light, which produces colours like red and green and blue, is only one very narrow and specific region of the broader spectrum of
1: light. Things like X-rays, gamma rays, UV, infrared, and importantly, radio waves
0: like the ones used to broadcast fine programs like the Naked Scientists.
1: Oh, very much so. These different kinds of radiation are all different kinds of light at different points on what is called the electromagnetic spectrum.
0: You can think of it like a whole bunch of different other colours, just like red and green and blue, but which are in the wrong parts of the spectrum to be detected by our eyes, because our eyes evolve to detect the kind of light that the sun puts out. But, rest assured, those other kinds of light are light all the
1: same. We refer to the different types of light by a property we call their wavelength. Lots of things in space which we're interested in learning about don't emit light in the visible part of the spectrum. They emit light of different wavelengths.
0: In particular, lots of interesting heavenly bodies emit light in the form of radio waves, which brings us to radio telescopes.
1: We can't see the radio wave light emitted by, for example, massive hydrogen gas clouds in space using our eyes or even an optical telescope. It simply passes through undetected. Instead, we need a different kind of telescope specially designed to detect radio waves.
0: Radio telescopes often look like a big antenna sitting inside a dish. If you've ever had a satellite dish on your house or seen a radio station tower, then you get the idea. The dish structure reflects radio waves onto the antenna, where they can be detected and converted into images.
1: But of course, we can't see the radio part of the spectrum. We need to look at the data in different ways and measure the amount of light of a given wavelength that arrives at the antenna from a given direction. We can also use clever data processing to generate images that we can make sense of with our eyes. Representations of what we might see if we could detect radio waves with our retinas.
0: Radio telescopes open our eyes to see all kinds of different colours of light coming from space, not just the ones we're used to.
1: We've been building radio telescopes since the 1930s, and they've played a major role in some of the largest discoveries in the history of astronomy.
0: It was radio telescopes that allowed us to detect the cosmic microwave background, the leftover radiation from the dawn of the universe, which has a wavelength far too long to be detected with optical telescopes.
1: Radio telescopes are also responsible for many of our observations of the big structures in the universe. We mentioned clouds of hydrogen gas before. These are important because hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and wherever there is a lot of matter, say in a galaxy for example, there's likely to be a lot of hydrogen. This means that by looking for hydrogen, we can also learn a lot about those large, heavy structures. It turns out hydrogen gas has
0: a natural characteristic wavelength of light that it emits the famous 21-centimetre hydrogen line, as it's called.
1: This special wavelength is squarely in the range detectable by radio telescopes, meaning that we can use them to look for this characteristic radiation and figure out where there are large amounts of hydrogen gas and then learn more about the structure of big things like galaxies.
0: In fact, it was radio observations of hydrogen gas which allowed us to measure the way that galaxies, like ours, rotate. This work, in the 60s and 70s, led us to discover one of the biggest mysteries in the cosmos today. The understanding that over five-sixths of all of the matter in our galaxy, and most galaxies, is actually this mysterious invisible stuff called dark matter. This is a topic we are certain to cover in a future episode.
1: And more recently, you may have heard of the Event Horizon Telescope in 2019, which produced the first ever image of a black hole. And you guessed it. Event Horizon is a network of radio telescopes.
0: That's right. Event Horizon is a great example of one of the neat things about radio telescopes. So the power of a radio telescope increases with the physical size of the area where you're collecting radio wave radiation. But at a certain point, just like with other telescopes, it becomes very impractical to make the telescope any bigger. There's a limit to how big you can make these dishes. However, if you're clever, you don't actually need to make one really large dish you can combine signals from a network of smaller dishes spread out across the globe, just like the Event Horizon Telescope did.
1: The higher the total combined collecting area of all your dishes is, the better. But funnily enough, having your dishes spaced out over a larger area, a longer baseline, as astronomers call it, can also lead to more powerful imaging.
0: Using a clever data analysis technique called interferometry, scientists can combine signals from radio telescopes which are really far away from each other and increase the resolution of the image compared to if they just had a large antenna in a single place.
1: However, synchronising and processing all of the data from a large distributed network of antenna can present an enormous engineering and computational challenge.
0: We've been building larger and larger and more distributed telescopes for decades, getting more and more powerful and learning an ever-increasing amount about the
1: universe. And all that progress has been leading to an incredible device which is in development right now, the Square Kilometre Array.
0: The SKA will be the largest and most powerful telescope of any kind ever developed by human beings. It will be a truly staggering, mind-bending achievement of science and technology.
1: Originally proposed in the 90s and in the works since then, the SKA will consist of thousands upon thousands of receivers, some in South Africa and some in Western Australia. It's a collaborative international effort to build one of the most sensitive scientific instruments of all time. It's definitely a
0: work in progress, but scientists are confident that we'll get there sometime this decade. And when we do, we'll be able to see the universe like we've never seen it before.
1: So now we know some of the basics of radio astronomy in the SKA, we're ready to hear about it in a bit more depth. How far off is it, and what will it actually look like?
0: But don't just listen to us blathering on. We were lucky enough to chat to one of the most qualified people on Earth to tell you about it.
1: Phil Diamond is the Director General of the SKA project, and he had lots of fascinating things to say.
2: So so the sites have been selected. The sites for the two telescopes were selected Uh, back in 2012. And on those sites, in both countries, the the national radio astronomy communities have built what we call precursor radio telescopes. So in South Africa, they built Meerkat, which is uh, 64 dishes, which is now operational. In Australia, uh, CSIRO, the National Research Organization, has built what is called ASCAP, the Australian SKA Pathfinder. It's 36 12-metre dishes with very innovative radio cameras at the focus. And then an international consortium of universities, led by Curtin in Perth, have built the Murchison Wide Field Array, which is a precursor low-frequency telescope. So what these projects have done, as well as building telescopes to do science, is they've established Virgin sites, effectively, there was nothing on these sites uh, before these telescopes arrived.
0: Okay, so we've talked about uh, the SKA, it's big radio telescope, it's distributed. What does it actually look like? Like, what, is a, what does a part of an SKA look
2: like? In, in South Africa, uh, what we call SKA-MIT, we are going to develop much more attractive names for, uh, for these things. But at the <laughs> moment, we call them SKA-MIT. Acronyms are very important and SK-Low, that's because SK-MID will work at what we call mid-frequency range for for radio astronomy. It will consist of 197 dishes. Each dish is about 15 meters in diameter. They are large single dishes. The Lovell telescope that I can see right out of my window from my office right now is 76 meters in diameter. But building a massive array of 76-meter antennas is... Far too expensive. And be, building a, a huge single dish uh, many kilometers across is is technologically challenging, even impossible. What we're doing is building an array of smaller dishes, 197 of them in South Africa, all connected by fiber optics back to a central, really, it's a, we call it a, a, a correlator, but it's a special purpose computer. It's a lot of digital hardware. So that's what SKA mid will look like. SKA low, which operates at much lower frequencies, between 50 and 350 megahertz. So encompassing the FM radio band, for example, will have a different technology because dishes don't work so well at low frequencies. We are reverting then there to an older technology, although much evolved, much improved. They're, they are what we call log-periodic dipole antennas. So they're like two-metre tall, almost Christmas tree-like uh, antennas. They are cousins, evolved cousins, of the old um, TV antennas we used to have on the side of our houses before, you know, sky satellite dishes appeared. So we'll have 100 and, almost 132,000 of these low-frequency antennas spread across the Western Australian desert. It's actually 131,072 of them.
0: The technologies that we would, they they would look like stuff we would recognize, right? In Australia, we have stuff that looks like, as you said, old TV antennas. And in South Africa, things that look like the more modern satellite dishes that some people might have, I suppose.
2: That's exactly right. You know, the metal hardware will be familiar. It's the scale of it is different, much different from anything ever built before. We'll be building many more of these things. But the, the really innovative part, the challenging part, is the digital signal processing and the software to cope with the enormous volume of data that these these machines will generate. Just as an example, from these periodic dipole antennas, the raw data generated from all of the antennas is about six times the global internet traffic. So it's, it's, it's of order two petabits per second which is about six times the rate at which data flows across the global internet.
0: Of course, because they're constantly acquiring.
2: We're constantly acquiring that data. Now, of course, the data is all in one format. It's on our network. We immediately put it through first level of digital signal processing to reduce the volume of the data and send it off to to correlators. So we control every aspect of it. It's not the chaotic nature that the, the global internet is. To, to, it's in a very controlled environment. Anyone scale who grew data. up
0: on the internet can attest to
1: that chaos. <laughs> yeah. yeah, chaotic is the word.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's handling that scale of data, I think, that uh, is one of the challenges.
1: So you've got
0: all these uh, dishes and, and, tel- and uh, antennae pointed at the sky, constantly acquiring all of these radio waves from space that we can then use to do astronomy. You say there's like a ridiculous amount of data... What kind of images do you get out of those radio waves?
2: There's a couple of different ways in which the data is handled. So radio images of the sky is one. Because of the volume of data, the software needs to be modified, upgraded, made to work on modern supercomputers. We will be producing radio images of the sky. So we'll be able to overlay these radio images with with images from, say, the Hubble Space Telescope. Another type of data we'll be processing is what's called time series. From each of the antennae, from each of the what we call the baselines, the, the connections between them, we will be getting these time series of data. And, and this is a another thing that astronomers will use to, to look for particular types of objects in the sky, such as pulsars. Pulsars are these rotating remnants of stars that have exploded in a supernova. And they they emit these sort of lighthouse beams of radio emission. They're nature's clocks, superb clocks in in the sky. And the the way those data are received and processed is through taking the time series of data and looking for the the time signals that emerge from, from that data. Pulsar astronomers can measure those times incredibly accurately And there's all sorts of fundamental physics that emerges from pulsar astronomy. Similarly, there's these fast radio bursts, which are a relatively new object, of which we know very little. SKA will be finding hundreds, thousands of these these things, so hopefully we'll be able to understand the nature of these. But they are incredibly short, millisecond bursts of very powerful uh, radio signal from somewhere in the sky. We don't actually know what the objects are that emit these things yet. There are various theories, but uh, none are, are yet pinned down. Um, but, but actually, what, all of this, what this demonstrates is that we are not fixed on the form of uh, object that we will see, the particular types of data. So we, we have deliberately designed the SKA to be an exploration machine as well.
1: So you mentioned there kind of some things the SKA will be looking at, but are there any, I suppose, like mission statements, any things in particular you're going to point it at first or anything you're particularly excited to point it at?
2: The, uh, the, the science case for SKA, if I may,
1: ah, here it is. Hm.
0: Uh, so uh, for audio listeners, uh, Phil has just picked up two very large, thick books—the size of uh, two encyclopedias each.
2: Yeah, so they actually they weigh nine point eight kilograms combined.
1: Fantastic. A uh, good exercise then, yeah? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, so so that's uh, two thousand pages describing the science that astronomers hope to do with the SKA, but in there. We have identified what we call key science programs. So the SKA must be able to deliver these key science projects, as well as do an enormous other range. But at at the very least, it must be able to do the key science projects. One is using pulsars. To use pulsars to understand the nature of gravitational waves. A few years ago, LIGO, the 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 laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory, detected gravitational waves from massive objects uh, coalescing and emitting gravitational waves across the universe. That's one way of detecting them. Another way of detecting gravitational waves from much heavier objects, supermassive black holes at the hearts of galaxies, is by observing the effect of the gravitational waves on the pulsars that sit across the Milky Way, across our galaxy. We'll be using the SKA to monitor the signals coming from a network of pulsars. These are very accurate clocks, nature's clocks, remember, distributed across the sky. And as a gravitational wave crosses our galaxy, it will perturb the clock signals, and we'll be able to detect that perturbation and therefore measure the gravitational wave.
0: So like a galaxy-wide gravitational wave observatory, as opposed to a few kilometre tunnel?
2: Yeah, it's using the galaxy as a telescope, as a detector, which I I find mind-blowing. Another key area is to use uh, hydrogen. So with the SKA, one of the reasons we're going from 50 megahertz all the way up to 15 gigahertz is to be able to have that full range of frequency to detect hydrogen all the way back almost to the dawn of the universe. So we want to see what happens in those early years of the universe when the universe started to become transparent to radiation and watch the first stars, the first galaxies evolve all the way up until the present day. So essentially, we'll be acting as a time machine.
0: Is the point just that, because hydrogen is everywhere in the universe, it's extremely abundant. Being able to see the characteristic radiation that only hydrogen emits allows you to see a lot of the interesting structure. And because the signals of the hydrogen in the early universe are still kicking around in the universe, they're just changed a bit. We can still see those really early signals and kind of reconstruct what happened in the early universe?
2: No, that that's exactly right. Our, our images of the early universe have, been, have come from projects spacecraft like, uh, like Planck, an ESA mission that ended a few years ago, or its precursors. These satellites produced uh, snapshots of what the universe looked like when it was about 400,000 years old. Uh, bear in mind, it's almost 14 billion years old now. So we have these snapshots, and there's a huge amount of physics being gained from the, those snapshots of the universe as a baby, as a child, really. And what we want to be able to do with hydrogen, which, as you say, is, is everywhere, is make a movie of the universe from its childhood, growing up through adolescence to the mature universe that we now live in. There's going to be some fantastic things come from that, that ability to just observe that time period.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see what we learn.
2: Those are just two of the key science Projects encapsulated in the 2000 page science case. There are many more. We'll, we'll be trying to understand the fundamental nature of magnetism in the universe. Again, that's best studied by radio astronomy. We'll be looking for the signatures of biomolecules, which are potentially the origins of life on Earth and therefore potentially elsewhere in the universe. Many other things as well.
0: Why is it called the Square Kilometer Array? It sounds like it's much, much bigger than a square kilometer in size. <laughs>
2: The physical extent of the telescopes are much bigger. So in South Africa, these 197 dishes are going to be spread across 150 kilometers. And in Western Australia, the stations of the dipole antennas spread across 65 kilometers. But there's there's a lot of gaps, a lot of space in there between the, the dishes and the antennas. In a sense, the SKA square kilometer is a misnomer right now. What we're designing and shortly building is phase one of the project. Um, And the combined surface area of the dishes and antennas will be, uh, in that case, will approach a square kilometre. That was the, the original ambition. That is still our aspiration, is to go for what we call the full SKA. So the current thing that we are building is a step along that road. Uh, So as I said, it's a bit of a misnomer, but it does reflect our future ambition. And what it is, it's if you add up the surface area of each of the individual dishes, and they're equivalent in the antennas, it's a mathematical concept for the antennas, it should, with the full SKA, approach a square kilometre.
1: If you've got a load of antenna, just kind of sitting on the ground that's just taking in all the radio waves that are coming in. How do you pinpoint that, you know, okay, this bit of radio wave came from this bit of the sky? Imagine that the
2: dish is a radio version of an eye. With your eye, when you look in a certain direction, you can't necessarily see what's off to the side. You have your peripheral vision. You can't see what's, what's behind you or way off to the right or the left. So, you know, your eye has a beam, effectively, that, that it can see. And of course, you know, you move your head to look at other things. And that's exactly analogous to what we do with the dishes. The dishes, they, they have a beam shape, approximately equivalent to the, the size of the full moon. In fact, even even larger. To point to different areas of the sky, you know, we just move all of the antennas to point in that direction. That gives us the, the the field of view that we are looking at is the beam of an individual dish. But then to see the detail within that dish, that's where we re- rely on the array, the interferometric nature of the SKA, because we'll have individual dishes separated by up to 150 kilometers, and combining the signals from those dishes synthesizes another beam which is much much smaller because of the separation of the dishes. And so that acts like a zoom lens within the field of view. So we can see very fine detail on the many thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of objects within the field of view. And that's how we build up the the radio picture of the sky. The um, low frequency antennas is somewhat different. Each individual antenna effectively sees the whole sky all the time. But what we do is electronically create beams from the individual stations and steer them around the sky according to the object the astronomers want to look at. With those antennas, we can have multiple beams operating, pointing in different directions at the same time, because it really just depends upon the software and the the digital electronics in the back end. So they might look like simple, Christmas tree antennas sitting in the desert there, but very sophisticated systems behind them.
0: So just roughly then, um, how, how, how roughly would that, that work? I mean, if you've got the radio waves hitting the antenna from all directions at all times, how do you tell like, the algorithm or the, the digital signal processing which parts of the radio waves incoming are, are relevant?
2: What happens is an astronomer, or more likely a large team of astronomers, will put in a proposal To do a particular project, you know, to observe a particular area of the sky for a long time to get a very deep image or to observe the whole sky to get less deep images, but a survey of the sky, whatever. They'll, They'll put a proposal in. That goes through a selection process. It'll be the science will be compared with science from other proposals. And if it is selected, it will get time on the telescope then the SKA team will translate the astronomers' instructions to point the telescopes uh, in different places at at different times and we'll we'll get the data. In the old days, uh, we used to have what we called mercury delay lines, which were actually tubes filled with mercury that uh, were actually adjusted for each each individual uh, pair of antennas so that they all effectively weighted the the beams towards a particular part of the sky. We now do that in digital electronics.
0: So it's like adding a delay or something from one antenna to the next that that creates this artificial beam shape. Exactly. Okay, and does that relate to what you were talking about with the interferometric nature of the dishes in terms of how far apart, having, having the dishes further and further apart enables you to by cleverly combining the signals get finer resolution across the sky?
2: Yes, yes, no, that's exactly right. So I, my analogy is, is one of a zoom lens. A big single dish mm-hmm. is a wide angle lens. Uh, an interferometer with widely separated dishes is, uh, is a zoom lens. Gives you that, that fine level of detail in the sky.
0: I don't want to hold you to anything, but roughly, what do you think is a time scale for, for when we're going to be turning on even the first stage of the SKA?
2: We're just about to create the SKA observatory as a living entity. Uh, This is, there was a treaty that was signed in March of 2019. The treaty has been ratified by requisite number of countries. We're going through the final administrative stages. And within a few weeks, we should announce the formation of the observatory itself, which is the successor to the current organization that, that we have. So all, everyone will, all the staff will move across to the observatory which is like ESO or CERN. It's an intergovernmental organization. The Governing Council of the SKA Observatory, which has members from the participating nations, I am hoping will give us the permission to start construction activities in the middle of 2021. Our target date is actually the 1st of July of next year. Um, That's so very that, exciting. Yeah, that is in After all of the years we've spent developing and designing, that's very exciting. So if we start construction activities, uh, which is going out to tender, uh, to industry, on the 1st of July, I hope we will see the first hardware on the ground, the first testing of real hardware on the ground two years later. Early science, which is the the commissioning of, uh, of science modes with significant fractions of the two telescopes, in about 2025 and end of construction 2027-28.
0: Okay well that ended up being a more complicated question than I intended it to be but just very quickly so let's say it's, it's 2028 we've got the SKA we're doing all kinds of incredible science we spend a little while using this incredible tool and we learn a lot of amazing things let's speculate for a moment let's say you could have something even more high concept, even more ambitious. What would be, in your mind, the future telescope beyond the SKA and and what kind of uh, technology would it rely on?
2: Well, I've mentioned to you the full SKA, phase two, the expansion across southern Africa and across Western Australia. Ultimately, astronomers are thinking of the dark side of the moon. Um, Wow. Telescopes up there. Now, that really is unlimited budgets required (laughs)
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To,
2: to to put things up there, and uh, almost certainly robotic technology to to deploy and o- operate these things. A three-year postdoc up on the dark far side of the moon might be interesting, but um,
0: sounds like fun. Yeah.
2: yeah, sounds like fun. But yeah, that that's probably the the um, the ultimate I, I could imagine at the moment. Um, One one could also imagine free-floating radio telescopes with several hundred thousand kilometre baselines uh, out out in space. In space. But that's even Mm. more technological challenges associated with that, I think, uh, for a future generation.
1: And thanks so much to Phil for taking us through all that. That is it for this month's episode of Naked Astronomy. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned something.
0: I hope you're as excited about the SKA as we are. We stand to learn some really amazing things about the universe when it turns on.
1: If you enjoyed yourself, please get in touch with us on social media, at Naked Astronomy or at Naked Scientists. Throw us a subscribe or leave us a rating, review, comment or like, wherever you're listening.
0: You can also get in touch with us by sending a radio signal into deep space and hoping we pick it up with a big fancy telescope.
1: Also, if you think you've got a big cosmic question you would like to see us cover, send it our way. You can get me at adam at Or
0: me on email at benm at or at drbtmcallister on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben McAllister.
1: I'm Adam Murphy.
0: And keep watching the skies.